Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of a Shabbat sermon by Rabbi Cantor Hilary Chorney. There are lots of different ways of sharing Torah. This morning, I want to share with you some words of Torah that are kind of lengthy but written in a form, fun format, I hope. I have a, a little circle here in the community that we've begun of uh, writers, people in this community. Actually, this community is full of writers, of authors, people who do it professionally and also for fun. It would have been the case this summer that I'd planned to take a mini sabbatical um, with Annie Spar and with Mia Pardo, who are beloved members of this community. In different ways, Annie is the president of our sisterhood Mia, uh, among other things, is a teacher of humanities here at Pressman Academy, also a parent of a recent bat mitzvah in this very room. We were going to go to Iowa together to study at the summer's renowned writer's workshop. I wish we could do that, and I am hoping that we find a way to salvage that experience and that opportunity this summer. In any case, writing is a big part of my life. I do it often. I do it lishma for its own sake, and I also do it as a part of my integrating Torah into my own thoughts and into my way of sharing it with you. So I try out different formats, and this is one way of sharing it. I'll also post it in writing as well because it's really an essay, but also a Devar Torah. I'm excited to share it with you, and when I'm done with it, um, we'll, we'll wrap uh, with a a bit of a kavanah and the end of services in Kiddush as well. Um, I hope you enjoy it. It's, it's kind of funny. Um, it involves some stories of some crazy things that have happened to me in my life. And it's about um, the mundane wonders of nuance and the toolkits that I think we've been given as conservative Jews, as people living in the center in this inexplicable, non-binary place, neither to the extremes of letting go of tradition nor completely grasping hold of it, uh, that have given us these, these tools to proceed through even this crisis with incredible strength. I, I really do hope you enjoy it. I'm going to stop the preamble now, but I needed a cup of water to share this. I acknowledge that rationality is just a fine dot in the rearview mirror these days. But when no fewer than six people forward me the same article announcing that supplantation is closing, I am irrationally grief-stricken. The shuttering of this particular buffet chain is the irreparable tear down my garment as I mark the death of pre-COVID normalcy. I self-soothe. The restaurant chain declared bankruptcy once before. I have to forgive myself for processing the news as if we're still living in 2018 when anti-Semitism was on the rise, back when it seemed that if we put up enough of an organized fight, our enemies could be vanquished. In the southwest corner of the original San Diego location of Sioux Plantation, there is a green and mauve Naga Hyde booth where my younger self dangled restless legs on nights out courtesy of entertainment books, 
thick tomes full of coupons that were sold as fundraisers in middle school. Saturday evenings, waiters would pass through the dining room dishing out gooey chocolate chip cookies. On Sunday mornings, they would give out freshly baked blueberry muffins. By all measures, the place should not have smelled good. Caesar salad in combination with mac and cheese and nine types of soup and shallow pans of underbaked brownies. But the smell and the ambiance were illogically comforting, the way I cannot explain why I enjoyed the bland vanilla soft serve that also crunched with ice crystals. Soup Plantation was one of those holy, extraordinary mainstays that sprouted in the fertile soil of nostalgia and then blossomed perennially, to my delight, in the context of young parenthood. That place was a gift to families, as anyone who witnessed its judgment-free disarray could attest. The bold 90s pattern carpet so durable it could withstand the high ratio of food aimed at the floor as compared to mouths. When we were baby-led weaning, we'd just stick a $10 bill on the table in anticipation of the horrors to come, and we'd smile at our server with mild apology, but they knew. They got it. That was Sue Plantation's reason for existing. Messiness. Wholesome. Chaotically good eats. And Sue Plantation is, uh, curse the past tense, was the platonic ideal of an eatery where I could engage with the world and keep kosher. It was a training ground for lived-out nuance as my evolving 20-something self re-entered the landscape of my first set of formative years. I knew how to engage with the secular world. To bear the duality of an American Jewish identity that I'd been born into, I was a lifer in the public school system, a third-generation American on both sides, and I'd learned to how to fluently navigate the intricacies of kashrut, the inherited system of dietary laws passed through generations of rabbinic Jews, that I had been naturalized into by way of study and immersion in the observant community. Deep down, I was aware that a reckoning would come. There would need to be a reconciliation of these two parts of me. The bubble of immersion would pop, and the world of kashrut and every other observant part of my routine would grind uncomfortably against the inherited secular world of my adolescence. But I resisted. And it happened, finally, on a trip to Greece. We had been dating for less than three months when the idea came up that my then-boyfriend, now-husband, would join me on a trip overseas. Not me, us, and not overseas precisely, because we already were overseas. We'd met in the study hall of the conservative yeshiva in Jerusalem, two scruffy and scrappy post-collegiate soulmates, lovers of Talmud and shawarma, and long walks on the tayelet that wore the soles of our sandals thin. Solo and unbound, we met at the peak of individuation, sure-footed in our orthodoxies on just about every subject of ritual observance. We indulged in marathon late-night conversations, a hallmark of early relationship building, getting to know one another 
through our responses to the texts we learn side by side in the daylight. We idealized and wondered and debated the permissiveness of that and the prohibitions of this, all cloaked in the self-righteousness of yeshiva learning. Now, as my parents were preparing for a February visit to Israel and an extended trip to Greece, they wanted to know if my beau wanted to come along. We committed to the joint travel, less concerned than we probably ought to have been about the consequences that would have ensued if we had broken up meanwhile. The wheels went up on our flight to Athens, and still, we had not considered the impact of reverse culture shock upon leaving the shelter of Jerusalem. Baseball caps pulled low over our kippot. We briefly discussed and then dismissed any concerns that it would be difficult to simply eat cold vegetarian food wherever we went. We'll just eat a lot of fresh Greek yogurt, we said. And waffles. We'd agreed waffles were okay. What would there being cooked exclusively on a machine designated for that pastry? Two to three days into the trip, the thick yogurt was still delicious, but monotonously disappointing, uh, especially as my parents gently, lovingly, pityingly offered to buy falafel to give us relief. Then there was the dismaying discovery of the 2009 culinary trend, let's put bacon in everything, including waffles. So we were down to yogurt and coffee and the occasional imported can of tuna struggling to make any meal into a meal. Our bodies roamed ancient landscapes, hopping to the stunning island of Santorini. Classic views I'd only seen in movies or Encyclopedia Britannica. My mind was stuck in an unhealthy loop of food dissatisfaction and calorie-poor energy slumps, turned away from what should have been a thrilling, if not at least a dramatic, trip. The boyfriend and the parents, abroad, roaming cats and ruins and swimming in the Mediterranean. And all I could wonder was whether I could stretch myself so far as to add granola to my yogurt tomorrow, having researched the European vegan certification on its label for two hours at an internet cafe. That's how I spent my vacation in Greece. When I tease through the emotions of that trip, I remember a profound sensation of relief on returning to Israel. At the time, I declared upon landing at Ben-Gurion that I was glad to come back to my sense of safety as a Jew, but what I meant then was a kind of simplistic, we're safer in our homeland. What I was actually experiencing was a relaxation back into the arms of a place that did not ask me to think much about the way I walked through life. Need to eat? Every place, or nearly every place, is kosher certified. Every item at the grocery store is good to go. Need a place to pray? Here are multiple walkable options, even for gender egalitarian worship. Want a place to study, immerse in your tradition among elite academics? Go ahead, do it, all day long. I didn't notice the not grappling, because Israel is full of plenty of grappling with boundaries, politics, gender, and more. But not observance. Not once did I have to wonder if I wandered outside of an Eruv, the construct that allows me to carry objects outside my home on Shabbat. 
In Jerusalem, I could give myself over to the gluttony of consuming everything without concern, even eating yogurt and waffles exactly if and when I liked, and only then. Consequently, I emerged from yeshiva with my arms full of exquisite love-drenched Torah that applied beautifully under sterile laboratory conditions. Blinking in the bright sunlight of an American summer, my questions outpaced my confidence in a heartbeat. How to negotiate sharing an apartment with an old Jewish college roommate who doesn't do Shabbat? What about the pub fries in D.C. that made my eyes water with joy? Did I really want to know if all these years they'd been sharing an oil bath with the chicken wings? There I sat in the pub, same old table, my fingers and my mouth, my body the same as they'd ever been, mired in quotidian decisions and feeling responsible for explaining first to myself and then to everyone around me how those decisions added up. I searched for the precise admixture of decision-making that conveyed consonance and consistency. Ah, they would say, not an ounce of hypocrisy in her. That made perfect sense, said no one ever about Jewish legal logic or, frankly, about the complex and often web, uh, unwise web of decisions made by most people in their mid-20s. And sometime in that first year or two back in the States, I was on a visit to my parents in San Diego when the topic of going out for dinner came up. What about supplantation, they suggested. I considered it the way that someone who's just begun a couch to 5K must think about a marathon. I could train for that, I thought. I would have to do extensive research about ingredients, and I would need to know in advance if the menu had enough vegetarian options to be worth my while. To this day, there are no restaurants with kosher kitchens open full-time in San Diego County, and at the time, my parents' own kitchen wasn't even kept fully kosher. Their offer to me was more than an invitation to dinner. It, it was an invitation to engage with the world. What does it mean to be ready to leave the cocoon of guarantees and engage with a world that's studded with uncertainty and brimming with possibilities, including all-you-can-eat flatbread and mediocre chocolate mousse? It takes a willingness to wrestle with complex rules an openness to make different decisions based on different circumstances and facing different data points, and a readiness to balance competing values. And these readiness mindsets, these are well-worn, well-seasoned armor, my armor for navigating a healthy re-entry these days to a world that's post-COVID. The sacred, sanitized space of our homestead amidst the past couple months of isolation has become a mini-Jerusalem, purified and set apart. We've so finely tuned our systems and limited our interactions with the life beyond our walls that the thought experiment about what it will mean to reintroduce activities to our life is exhausting. There will be rules. There will be hypocrisy and weighing of values against one another. There will be masks and so much hand sanitizer. And in return, will be handed the keys to reunions with people and spaces we miss. And we, us, we at the Vital Religious Center, we have weathered this grappling before. We know 
what it means to hold a rule book in one hand and a GPS in the other, to commit to our being bound by laws and equally feel a need to integrate in the world around us, to walk the fine line between ordering a regular tuna sushi roll and a spicy tuna sushi roll in a regular old sushi restaurant is to imagine what it means to negotiate the weirdness of a thousand micro decisions in the first few stages past total lockdown and isolation. The rules are delivered to us in a dizzying and indecipherable layer cake of ordinances that take parsing to understand first the letter of the law and then the spirit of the law. What we're invited to do with that complex pile of directives is to dive in deep and parse and explore how we can live by them. I read this gorgeous take by Sporno, a 16th century Italian rabbi and biblical commentator, on the sanctity of conscious engagement with the law. He takes this verse from the top of this week's second parsha, Bechukotai. Im Bechukotai te lechu et mitzvotai tishmoru ba'asitemotam. If you follow my laws and faithfully observe my commandments, Sforno reads the second verb in the verse, tishmoru, not as observe, but rather study. Rereading the verse with that application of meaning, Sforno is offering the part of the second part of this verse. It's clarifying expectations about our engagement with what is asked of us. If you walk in my laws, halicha, and also if you study these commandments in order to give meaning to your living by these laws, what he means is rote observance is insufficient. Rather, what's asked of us is a mindful, deeper learning about the laws we've inherited Questions are not heretical. On the contrary, they are the building blocks of shmirat halacha, the guardianship and the study of our holy tradition. Questions. Excuse me, are you sure the soup has vegetarian base? Could I sign my bar tab before Shabbat? Is there a staircase I could take to the second floor instead of the elevator? Questions. Excuse me, what do you mean essential personnel? Does that include me? And does that extend to my family? What sector is next? Does an outdoor room count as a room? What do I do when I run out of masks? Questions. We will have so many questions in this new world. Excuse me, would you mind putting on a mask? Do I have to sign up for this service in advance? Where do I touch? Who can I hug? What's safe? But we can handle questions. You and I, we've done this before. Some with more comfort than others advocating for our own comfort so that we can go out and live and breathe and be, be with others. This is what we will take, in part, questions. We'll also have to be willing to feel and appear inconsistent in our decision-making and to give complex answers When I make a lunch date with someone outside my immediate circle, the first question they ask me is, where are you comfortable eating? And the answer is, in a word, uh, colorful. I prefer to eat at kosher-certified establishments, but I would be willing to eat certain hot dishes at vegetarian restaurants. And you see, it's a paragraph of an answer these days, not a sentence. Was it simpler back when I was eating just yogurt and waffles? Sure. And it was a version of isolation, a social distancing that protected me from engaging in shmirah, as Sforno described it, 
No need, no use for asking any questions. But now I have a complex menu of places that are a yes, maybe, no when it comes to eating out. And the story of my eating habits over the course of a month, maybe they seem odd and inconsistent. Internally, though, I check them by a meaningful set of standards and thoughtful consideration of the laws of kashrut. Journeying into socially undistanced encounters with the world pose a similar set of complications. So you will go to the grocery store, but not to your office? And you will go to the pharmacy, but not to the synagogue? In both cases, what counts is that we extend a generosity of spirit to our thinking about the decision someone else is making about his or her body. And there's a limit to that generosity, a line drawn where someone else's liberty encroaches on your reasonable sense of safety. But what I'm focusing on here is what crosses our minds when we see someone in line at the grocery store with a basket full of toys, for example, and what it means to assume best intentions on their part. Maybe to put forth the goodwill that imagines they have a kid who's homesick and they're filling their cart with treats to keep their mind off the phone call they're awaiting with news of test results. It's an extension of the idea that when you see a from Jew walking into a McDonald's, the kind thing is to assume that she's going in for a Diet Coke or to use the bathroom or both. It's difficult to keep the flame of generosity alive when it seems like someone we know and love makes a choice today that's incongruous with their words and deeds yesterday. But first of all, this is a dynamic and ever-involving environment. We are all shifting and recalibrating constantly. And secondly, there may be consistency far beyond what's apparent to you in that moment. And... What is hidden about someone else's decisions may be their internal calculus as they weigh values that they're holding alive and in tension. The places where I stretch the most in my cost route, I am stretching to meet up with some other core value like peace in my family and respect for my parents. The same is true for people who are stretching the bounds of isolation. They are reaching out to loved ones who are vulnerable in their quarantine and they are managing precarious economic loads, and they are trying their best to support their own mental health and their kids' educations, and all that weighed against the perils of even stepping a foot outside their door. What's really important these days? So many things, it turns out. The great exercise of now is to release ourselves from the expectation of extremes. We need not hold our breaths through indefinite, isolated stasis. Nor should we anticipate a cathartic and total release. There is no rumspringa, no respite, no portal to a time before or a future to be. Just the creeping but certain collective self-liberation from this mess that requires us to actually engage with the world. And it's going to feel dirty and dangerous at times. I'm just guessing here, but it will probably feel too soon to return to most spaces. And we will need to return to some things eventually to engage with the world. Our guideposts are these tenets of nuance that allow us to occupy a vital middle ground that is utterly mundane and also the stuff of enduring safe return to life. It is the lukewarm mac and cheese of neighborly engagement the warm, utterly democratic offering 
that asks you to compromise a little to gain a lot. I really appreciate the space to share that with you. It's been on my mind a lot lately. It'd be great to hear from you, your thoughts on that. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to TBA.org.